0: if you would turn with me there and before i read i want to uh, i want to remind you that that luke writes what he writes so that the people who read him would have certainty the purpose of luke's writing is to produce confidence confidence in who jesus is confidence in what jesus did and the way that, that Luke does that in these opening chapters, the, the first two chapters are, of Luke are all about promise and fulfillment. right? Luke's goal is to show that Jesus' birth was not just some random chance event but it was actually God fulfilling a long-awaited promise. And so you're hearing the same theme in these first two chapters over and over again. And even today, uh, as we read, you're going to hear some of the same elements that if you've been here in the previous weeks, you, you've already heard. Promise, fulfillment, uh, a song uh, of, of prophecy and of, of thanksgiving to God. Um, these are these are some of the same elements that we've already seen uh again displayed here in Luke chapter 2 uh as Mary and Joseph take uh month old Jesus up to the temple and so uh that's where we will pick up the story Luke chapter 2 verse 22 if you uh if you don't have a bible please uh take the one that is in the rack there in the chair uh, and if you don't own a bible we would love for you to take that one home uh, we are on page 857 of that Bible. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, God, that you would bless its reading and its hearing and its preaching. God, would you use it? Use it to point us to Jesus Use it to transform us and make us new. God, would you accomplish your purpose in, it, in us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this story there's there 's a couple of scenes I want you to uh, see that we 're going to pull out, and then there is a uh, and then there is a, a an action that I want us to take okay and the first two the, the scenes that I want you to see uh, the first scene is you see faithful parents who are raising a perfect savior now I know, th- I know you think that that your child is perfect, um, but you ain 't got nothing on Mary and Joseph okay um, so just sit down, Mama. All right. Uh, and then I wasn't looking in that direction when I said that, by the way. Uh, and then the second, uh, the second little vignette I want to, I want you to see is that you see these faith, faithful saints who are longing for redemption. Uh, and then finally, we're going to see that Jesus demands a response. Even here, as a child, the very presence of Jesus demands a response, and we're going to talk about what that means. Uh, so let's talk about these faithful. Parents. Uh, notice I didn't reverse that order. They're not perfect parents, uh, but they are faithful. Uh, they, are, they are doing what they know uh, is right to do, what is right to do. I would imagine that that most parents are anxious to do all of the right things, particularly uh, with their first child. Uh, you may remember the the Love's diaper commercials that came out a few years ago that compared first kid and second kid. You know, the first kid, like the parents are falling all over themselves and sanitizing the pacifier and you know, uh, making sure the bath water's the right temperature and dropping the phone in the water and uh, and then by the second child, it's just like, do we have a child? What do we do with him? Where did he go? Uh, that. That was uh, that was kind of my experience. This will this will not surprise anybody who knows me, but um, you know I, I kind of like for things to be done the right way, um, and so uh, I remember uh, with our first uh, Weston taking him to one of his pediatrician appointments. He was really young, and we were uh, beginning to transition to eating solid food, uh, and so I just asked the uh, I just asked the pediatrician again now just to give you an idea of how messed up I am and how much therapy I'm going to have to pay for later. Uh, like, I had a schedule printed out on the fridge. Like, there was a three-hour schedule. There was a three-and-a-half-hour schedule. There was a four-hour schedule, right? Like, these were the times when the child woke and ate and played and napped. And if that schedule was disturbed, I was disturbed, right? So... You know, I, I wish I could say that a lot had, has changed in uh, in ten years. It hasn't. So, um, so I will apologize for that at some point in Weston's adulthood, I'm sure. Um, but I remember going to his pediatrician uh, and just asking the question: uh, Okay, so uh, what's what's the ratio? Right, we're we're starting to eat some solid food. Like, how much milk and how much solid food? And the pediatrician said. You really can't mess it up. <laughs> and I was like, no, I need to know. Like, what's the right thing to do? Uh, thankfully, I was not at home as much for our second and third children. Um, so they should be much better adjusted to life than the first. But um, So most parents, I would say, are pretty anxious to do the right thing. Um, Mary and Joseph, of course, are no different... Uh, they're good parents, they want to do well, but what they do here is actually far more important than, you know, sanitize a pacifier or use the right laundry detergent. Uh, What they do is they bring their child to the temple uh, for these ceremonial rituals that are commanded in God's law, right? Commanded in the Old Testament. The first thing they come for is purification. And this is not so much uh this is not so much about Jesus as it is about Mary. Uh, in Leviticus 12, uh, we're told that after childbirth, a, a woman was unclean for 40 days. Um, at which point, after that point, she would then present herself to the priest in the temple uh, to offer her sacrifice and to be deemed clean. Now, uh, that's a that's a complex issue. If you want to learn more about it, I, I recommend the, the Bible Project. They have a series of uh, helpful videos uh particularly on holiness and on these rituals but what the clean laws did in the old testament the purpose of these laws was to remind god's people that they were sinful uh, and that if they remained in their sin now again clean and sin don't clean and unclean sinful and sin, uh, sinless don't necessarily overlap but the whole purpose of the ritual was to say uh, you are not clean spiritually. Uh, you need to be cleansed. Uh, and the means by which that happened in the Old Testament was you presented sacrifices. So there were several things that you would present sacrifices for. Uh, and in this case, Mary brings a, a sacrifice. And the whole purpose of a sacrifice is basically that your uh, uncleanness is placed on the sacrifice. Your sin uh, is placed on the sacrifice, uh, and that sacrifice meets the consequence. Right, that that your uh, the, the the sacrificial animal takes the penalty of the sin rather than you. That's a very basic description, but that's kind of what's going on here. Um, and you may ask, you know, why um, women always seem to get a, a bad, uh, don't always get a fair shake in uh, in the Bible, or at least that's commonly what's thought. Uh, why would a, a woman who gives birth, which is something very natural to do, uh, why would she be unclean um, so basically, the clean laws just deal with all kinds of things, particularly blood and other stuff that um, that you are you are coming into contact uh, in some cases with death, um, but remember this that Back in Genesis, when uh, man and woman rebel against God, that each one of them are cursed in their particular area of uniqueness. And so for the man who is particularly commanded to work the ground, his work, his particular blessing now is made difficult, right? Because of his rebellion, his work is cursed. And for the woman, that area is childbirth. And so while this is more speculation, uh, so... Treading from here, this is just what Kevin thinks, you know, do with it what you will. Um, here here we have an instance where childbirth, the difficulty of childbirth and the blood and the pain associated with it, uh, would remind a mother of the fall. Would remind her of her uh, sin before God and the need to be forgiven by God. Okay? Uh, so, that's some of what's going on there in this ritual uh, and in this particular case, Mary and Joseph, the sacrifice that they bring is two pigeons. Uh, and the law tells us that the, the the sacrifice of two pigeons is actually for those who can't afford the lamb. And so this is just another reminder, I mentioned it last week, that Mary and Joseph are not wealthy people. They're not strapped in abject poverty, just scraping to get by, but they are Probably ordinary, working class people, which just simply reminds us, uh, Jesus' poverty highlights just how far down God is willing to go. That when He steps in to rescue His people, He doesn't do it through important people. People who know people. Uh, Jesus has no worldly position. Uh, in terms of, of where He comes from, He's a nobody. He has no status. No title, no throne, and what's going on here? Kind of like what uh, Paul read for us from First Corinthians is that God is displaying His power in the utter weakness of human strength. Right? That God is God is showing that uh, His salvation is not flashy or showy, but it is amazing. He is using the weakness and poverty uh, of this. Ordinary family to show that he can say, that, that it's not human strength or human status or human wisdom that saves. So, uh, so they show up, uh, they come for purification, but they also come for dedication. Uh, Exodus 13, uh, in Exodus 13, God tell, tells his people to set apart for me all the firstborn. Set apart from me, all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb, man or beast, is mine. Okay? And what's going on here is this is a, this is, comes with the Exodus, it comes with the, the moment that God saves His people out of Egypt, and it's a reminder to them of how God saved them. This is a, this is a visible word. This ritual is a visible word that is meant to remind the people that uh, just as God killed the firstborn of Egypt to set them free, so now their firstborn belong to God. They are to set apart, they are to dedicate their firstborn children to God. Alright, so so those are the rituals that Mary and Joseph uh, come to do. Um, what's most important is that they do all of these things just as God commands. That phrase happens four times in this passage. Right. Um, if you look at look at uh, verse twenty three, or excuse me, verse twenty two, according to the law of Moses, verse twenty three, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Um, let's see, and then it happens again. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, so it's a repeated thing again and again. Why does that matter? Uh, two reasons, two two ways two ways that we want to apply this. First, at a parental level, it tells us that the most important things we can do for our children are the spiritual things. Right, the most important things we can do for our children. Is to take them to, is to lead them to the Lord. All right? Did you notice that at the very end of the passage, look at the end of chapter 2 real quick. Excuse me, not the end of chapter 2, at verse 39. After they had performed everything, they went home. And what happened? The child grew and became strong. So he grew up physically. Uh, he was filled with wisdom. So we might say that he grew mentally. And the favor of God was upon him, so he even grew spiritually. So Jesus, and we're gonna, I'm gonna hit this again next week, but Jesus, do you ever think about this? Jesus has to grow up. Jesus is not born, you know, like this is not the matrix. Jesus is not born already knowing everything. When Jesus takes on the flesh of a man, when he is born uh, and con- conceived and born as a human being, he has to grow. His body has to get stronger. He has to n- learn the things of the Lord. He has to come even into an understanding of who he is. I think that's what we're going to see next week. How does Jesus do that? He has two godly parents who are, who are leading him to the Lord. Right? Um... He has two parents who desire to follow God and want to raise their son to know God. And I, I think what's important to, to see is that even with what these parents do know about their son, they don't take his spiritual growth for granted. Remember, both Mary and Joseph have been told who Jesus will be. Now, they they probably don't have the full picture. You know, they probably couldn't articulate a doctrine of the Trinity Okay, but they know that Jesus is special. Not everybody gets an angelic messenger. Okay, they know even that Jesus will be the Messiah, that he will take up David's throne. I don't know if they know how that will happen, but I think what's important to see from this passage is even they don't take his spiritual growth for granted. Joseph doesn't say, well, I mean, he's the Messiah. It'll be fine. He'll pick it up. You know, he'll, he'll learn to follow God. It'll happen, right? No, they, they take pains to do what is right according to the law, and then when they get home, they train their son. They lead him to know the Lord. Parents, at the end of all days, it won't matter. It won't matter how many trophies, ribbons, pictures, Disney trips, beach trips, experiences. It won't matter. Whether you had every single one or you didn't have a single one. It won't matter. Now don't get me wrong. I think those things can be good or most of those things can be good. But for parents, they can be idols. In fact, our children can be idols. Through which we experience the world's approval. Or... Maybe vicariously long for the world's idea of success. And we end up using all of these activities to worship our children. And with all the best intentions of the world, we actually make them idol worshippers rather than God worshippers. And so we need to see that the most important thing that we can do for our children is lead them to follow the Lord. Do do we believe that our children will be truly happy in the deepest sense of that word when they are knowing and serving God? Period. Do we believe that? In all that you seek to do as a family and in whatever opportunities you try to give your children, and I think you should. I think we should Try. With the best we, to steward our resources so that we can give our children good and right things. But in all that we seek to do as a family, whatever opportunities you try to give your children, make knowing God the ultimate aim. Everything else to serve that purpose. Knowing God. Then there's a the second application that's more important than that one. And it's that Jesus is obeying God's law before he can even speak. Before he can walk, before he can chew food, Jesus is obeying the law of the Lord. Now, I mentioned this last week, but why does that matter? Well, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 4.4. He says that Jesus is born under the law to redeem those under the law. You see, the very first breath, you and I, have been breaking God's law from the moment we broke out of the womb. Something the Bible calls, or what we call, original sin. Right? Uh, That means that the very first breath I took was an unholy breath. And what that means is I need a Savior who from the very moment of His birth lives a perfect life. Jesus' cross doesn't pay for anything if Jesus' life before it is not perfect. If Jesus does not keep every single part of the law before he gets to the cross, then his sacrifice does not matter. It is not a perfect sacrifice. And if Jesus isn't keeping the law even at the earliest of ages, that means that there's some point, right? If Jesus only begins to obey at age 12, that means that Me and you aren't covered before age 12. Right? In order to be our perfect sacrifice, Jesus has to be obedient all the way through. And that's what we see happening right here. Because Jesus keeps the law even before he can walk or speak or chew food. It means that he is a perfect sacrifice for you from beginning to end. There is no part of your life that is not covered. Now, Mary and Joseph are not the only uh, faithful people in the story. We meet two others. We meet these faithful saints who are longing for a Redeemer. One's name is Simeon. He's an example of a faithful man. And then one's name is Anna, a faithful woman. And so Mary and Joseph bring the baby into the temple. Uh, and this gentleman, Simeon, approaches them. Now, um, you know try not to be weirded out by the fact that this old guy grabs their baby uh and starts uh starts praising God um, probably probably would be a little bit taken aback if that happened to us um, but that's what happens right we don't we don't know anything about Simeon's uh job we don't know what he did we don't know anything about his family but verse 25 tells us about his character it says he was righteous and devout Righteous, uh, he he loved his neighbor, he was a just man. Devout or reverent, he loved his God. So in the two dimensions of knowing God, or, or of, of following God, loving God, loving neighbor, uh, Simeon did both of those things. He was a good man. It also says that the Spirit was upon him. And that's not something that happened a whole lot. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, up until really the book of Acts, the Spirit does not rest on everybody. It comes usually for a certain amount of time and goes. Uh, but for Simeon, it says the Spirit was upon him. So he is truly a unique individual. And the Holy Spirit tells Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And we mentioned this last week, but just remember that the Messiah, that name means anointed one. And this is who Israel was looking for. This was the great king who was to come and and rescue his people. And so so Israel's looking for the Messiah. Simeon has the privilege of basically living until he sees the actual Messiah. And so the Holy Spirit leads Simeon, we don't know how, but compels Simeon to go to the temple. Who knows how many days he had gone and, and done this and, and was on the lookout. But he goes to the temple and he sees Mary and Joseph and maybe the spirit just kind of whispered in his head, that's him. Right? And he goes and he grabs a month old little Jesus and he looks him in the face and he praises God and he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That language there makes me think of a, of a soldier who's been standing watch on a wall. Uh, and he's been standing watch through the night, always on the lookout, and now he can finally be dismissed. That's the language that Simeon uses. He is, he has completed his task, and now he can be dismissed. He can go off duty. He's basically saying, I can finally rest. I can be at peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at Jesus when he says this, right? As, he, as his eyes look into the eyes of this little boy, he knows. He sees the salvation. That you have prepared this salvation, this rescue comes from God, not from man. And he says, you've prepared it in the presence of all peoples. Now, this is a new dimension. Uh, up until this point, uh, the salvation has dealt with the Jews, But now, Simeon says, this salvation that this little boy will bring has to do not just with the Jews, but with all peoples. He will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles, for the nations, the ethnos. Because they are the ones who have no true knowledge of God. They, They have never seen the light of revelation. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have the word. But now Jesus will bring it to them. And He is a light for glory to Israel. You see, in in the Old Testament, Israel was chosen by God to reflect His glory to the world. And if you know that story, Israel failed miserably. Instead of reflecting God's glory to the nations, they became like the nations and reflected them instead. And so as Simeon looks at Jesus, he says... Now, God's glory will really be revealed to Israel. The true glory is resting there in His arms. He will be a true joy to the world. And at that same time, this other faithful saint walks up, Anna. And here's what we know about her. She's old, advanced in years, and she's been a widow for most of her life. But she did not waste her widowhood. It says that she did not depart from the temple. We might say she was there every time the doors were open. So she didn't leave the temple. It didn't mean she lived there, but she might as well have. Every opportunity, she was at the temple. And what was she doing? Worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna saw her lack of a husband and a family... As an opportunity to worship constantly. It was not a curse, but it was a blessing of a calling for her. She saw her lack of a husband and a family as an opportunity to seek the Lord's face and to long for her Redeemer. And so she too walks up at just the right moment. She sees Simeon cradling this child and praising God and she begins to do the same. Giving thanks, telling others who were waiting for the same thing she was. And the example of these two faithful saints leads me to this last point. That even at this early age, Jesus, even just His presence, He can't even say anything, Jesus demands a response. Now, the primary response we've seen so far in Luke's gospel is amazement. People have been astonished. They've praised God. We saw it with the shepherds. We see it with Simeon. We see it with Anna. Um, Mary and Joseph are awestruck at what uh, Simeon has just said about their child. You see that in verse 33 where they marvel. That same word has come up a couple of times now. But then Simeon mentions another response. He looks at Mary, in verse 34, and he said, Look, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He is a sign that will be opposed. What's he talking about? Well, back in Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord is described as both a sanctuary and a stumbling stone. That he is a place of refuge for some... But a stumbling block for others. That not everyone will approve of this boy. Not everyone will get on board with God's rescue plan. In fact, Jesus will be a sign. He will point people to God, but in the process of pointing them there, he himself will be opposed. And so, Simeon is foreshadowing for us what Jesus' life is going to look like. Yes, there will be some initial acclaim, but there will also be opposition and rejection. Some are going to fall. Some are going to fall over Jesus because they do not want Him. And some will rise because they will cling to Him. And Mary is told that a sword, the, the word that Luke uses there is not of a short sword, but actually a long, broad sword. A sword will pierce your own soul. Mary's joy will increasingly become grief and sorrow as she sees the road her son will have to go. And as she stands at the foot of his cross, in that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. I don't know if you were ever in our uh, our old sanctuary, uh, the sanctuary before it was renovated, um, but you could say that the lighting was probably not the best. I think they were probably brighter candles than the way that our sanctuary used to be lit. Um, and you know the thing about uh, about dim lights—it's uh, hard to see, but they also can cover up a whole lot of things, right? Darkness tends to shroud a whole lot of things. Um, and so when it says that Jesus uh, reveals the thoughts of many hearts, it's saying that Jesus exposes our hearts before God. That He illuminates what no one else can see. And, and just like brighter lights can make you painfully aware of just how messy your house is, so also Jesus' exposure can be a painful thing. And that is not something that everyone will be willing to embrace. Simeon is talking about Jesus' cross. And the cross is offensive. It is offensive because it says that the only way that you can be made right with God is through the sacrifice of another. It's offensive because it says you're not good enough. But he is. Your strength can't help you. But he can. Your status doesn't earn you anything, but His does. And this is offensive because it means you have to lay your life down if you want to receive His. And so the question we're presented with at the end of this passage is will you trip or will you stand? Will you stumble over Jesus and fall? Or will you stand in Jesus and rise? Are you amazed? Like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and the shepherds, are you amazed by Jesus? John Piper says, "...you cannot commend what you do not cherish." Christian, do you cherish Jesus? The hymn writer John Newton, looking at the work of Jesus, wrote the words, let us love and sing and wonder. Do you ever look at Jesus and get lost in wonder? Do you ever wonder why you don't make as much spiritual progress as you would like? Maybe it's because you haven't stopped long enough to be amazed by Jesus. There may be many things to you that are appealing about Christianity, but if Jesus is not at the center of those things, if cherishing Christ is not at the center of those things, then you're really missing what Christianity is all about. Or are you offended by Jesus? There's really only two ways to respond. You can't be neutral With Jesus, you will either stumble or you will stand. He is either a stumbling stone or a cornerstone. And if the only way that you can imagine salvation is through your own two hands, then you will trip over Jesus and you will fall. But for those who do not trip, for those who stand on Him like the cornerstone of a strong building, they will rise up. The word that Simeon uses here is the same word that will later be used for the resurrection. Those who trust in Jesus, who lay their lives down, who trust His humble obedience and His shameful death, will be raised up. That's an invitation. Let's pray.